When folks talk about tailoring, they often refer to the soft, unpadded shoulder found in Naples, Italy, or the strong chest and proportions of London Savile Row. But what about American tailoring? I mean, what is American tailoring? If you're my guest, it's like America itself, a bit of everything mixed together, but he also believes it means truly listening to people and understanding what they want. My name is Jeremy Kirkland, and this is Blamo, a podcast exploring the world of fashion with the people who shape it. My guest this week is Jake Muser, founder of J Muser. Jake and I discuss how he went from a punk rock button business to refining American tailoring and the evolution of American style. So Jake Muser, how you doing? You're on the podcast. Good. Very good. Awesome. I'm, I'm super glad you're here. There's... It's, it's funny because you have always been this sort of, to me, like this lore of the, the, you know, the last and the best of the actual New York tailors. Because you have, I mean, look, there are a lot of tailors in New York and a lot of people who make suits and do, you know, MTM and things like that. So I'm not throwing shade at everyone, but, you know, you've been in this for a long time. Um, and, and so it's, it's an honor to chat with you. And I mean, I love what you do. I'm super excited, but, uh, this is great. So thanks. Thanks for chatting with me. Yeah. My pleasure. Uh, before we get, we jump in. So where, where are you from originally? So I, I describe myself as East coast. I grew up kind of up and down in Philadelphia as a kid uh, Okay. or on the main line of Philadelphia and then in New Hampshire for my more kind of formative years from 12 to 18. Really? Uh, what's so- But my family's from New York. So we grew up. In New York a lot. I still have the most family members here in Queens or the Bronx or around really? the city. Okay. You're so my- this feels like home. It felt like home when I moved here and it, uh, you know, it always felt like the place I kind of belonged. Okay. Dope. Dope. Um, but where, 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 were you, where were you born? I was born in upstate New York. Upstate New York? So uh, why, why were you guys moving around so much? Kind of? You know, well, technically, they were really crazy. <laughs> uh, you know, my parents were in graduate school, so I actually lived in Chicago very briefly as a very tiny child, which is when I was, you know, I guess the story was actually my mother went into labor in Chicago and flew to New York. Are you kidding? To, to then do a home birth. My parents were kind of hippies. So <laughs> Wait, That's awesome. <laughs> which, uh, yeah, kind of a, a different world, I guess. Right. <laughs> Things you wouldn't do nowadays. So um, are, your, are your parents in academia? Yeah. Both. My father's a professor. My mother's a linguist. Oh, that's sick. So where, where, did, where did clothes come in? I mean, what was life growing up if you're kind of like traveling around? So and Definitely something that I kind of gravitated towards at a young age. I mean, I always got into dressing and, you know, having my own style, that kind of thing at a young age. Definitely not something that was learnt from a, from a family member. My father, his mother bought him his clothes until I started getting into clothes, and now I give him his clothes. He's not someone who cares at all the way he looks. He's like the kind of quintessential nutty professor. <laughs> really? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, did, when you, did you first like get into clothes? Like, like what, what were the things that so, you know, popped up? I started, you know, I was kind of into the music scene and punk rock when I was a kid, so I was making my own clothes when I was a teenager. By making, I mean like you know, ripping up jackets or putting safety pins in things or drawing on them, that kind of stuff. Oh, really? Um, Which is a totally different aesthetic, obviously, but I think I continue to see these kind of parallels between the way I've kind of progressed in my life and business kind of back to that kind of idea. Yeah, I mean, there's a creative aspect there. Yeah, yeah, I mean, a lot of it was just in this kind of do-it-yourself attitude, which has always been a big part of, you know, 
at least what I think part of my success has been, this kind of not being afraid to just kind of jump into something and, and just do it, essentially. Right. Um, so that was like as a teenager, something that I was really into. And I had kind of little distros where I sold kind of clothing or I sold accessories, things like that. And then I initially wanted to go to school to become an engineer. And then I realized that I hated engineering and that I <laughs> didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I took some time off and then I decided, you know, I've always liked making clothing. I think I'm going to go to FIT and like really and kind of hone this craft and learn how to do this properly. Well, wait, let's, I want to uh, go back one step. You said that you kind of had your own distro thing earlier. So were you selling and making clothes? I mean, before you even went to school? Oh, yeah. So I started off, I was selling buttons, if you know, your badges. Yeah, like punk rock buttons. Yeah, I was selling those. I had a whole kind of setup. I bought the button. I saved up. I bought the button machine. I made all the buttons. I had a rudimentary website, and I sold them. Eventually, if anyone knows Boston, I sold at Newberry Comics and a bunch of these different kind of... Wait, hold on. That's a big deal. Newberry Comics is one of the greatest record stores ever on the face of the earth. I love Newberry Comics. (laughs) and from my time working in the music industry, they, God bless them, shout out to Newberry Comics, they are um, very uh, peculiar on what they want to stock. So the fact that you were in Newberry Comics is a really big deal. I need to call that out. It was good. <laughs> what were your buttons? I mean, I had, you know, I got, a, I got in trouble for selling kind of like... 80s movie classic buttons because they were unlicensed, but I was doing... Wait, wait, how are, wait hold on. How are you, I, just so everyone knows here, I'm sitting up here. What, what do you mean unlicensed? Like, who so was can, going after you? Well, we, I just said, someone had mentioned, it was like Newberry Comics got like a letter, what are these buttons? And then they were like, okay, we can't start, we can't keep selling those buttons. What, what were they? Um, you know, I think I had done like an ALF button and some <laughs> other like, like, you know, kind of hipstery stuff, you know. Um, and, you know, the idea... I mean, you know, with a button machine, if you don't know how these things work, is you literally just go to Kinko's and you print something that's the size of the template. Mm -hmm. And then you have a little machine that cuts it out and it goes into another little machine and you crank it and there's your button. Like, so you can put anything in there. You could, you know, I remember, uh, you know, you could just be like, hey, hey, Jeremy on a piece of paper and I could make that and pass it to you. Um, And then there's a button. And there's a button, (laughs) you know. So how old were you at this time? So I got that when I was in high school, but then when I was like, so after high school, when I was, took a little time off, I moved to Boston, lived with some friends, and this was my kind of primary thing. At the time, I was also, I, I was also selling patches and other kind of things, and I was also, I was develop, I started developing like a line of pants, kind of like, that I, that didn't take off, but I was kind of working on this, on this like, what I thought would be like the kind of ultimate like punk pant, but it, then I got, I don't know. The development, the price point, I couldn't really make it work. So you are, what, like 18, 19? 18, 19, yeah. You're making buttons, punk rock buttons with, you know, 80s type meme things and all sorts of stuff on it. Yeah, and bands and all kinds of stuff. You're selling it arguably probably like the greatest cosine of any indie music rock store. It was like the shop. Yeah. (laughs) And then all of a sudden you think, maybe I should make pants? Yeah, I started trying to develop these these uh this pant, but it But talk to me about the pant. <laughs> the pant was kind of like I mean essentially it was like a stretch jean, which at the time were harder to find, like a really skinny fit stretch jean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I used to wear girls stretch jeans 
when I was doing like my punk rock days. Yeah. So that was kind of, that was, that was, those were the options basically. Yeah. So, you know, I think nowadays, obviously you can find these anywhere. They're easy. Everyone wears skinny <laughs> pants. In those sure. days they made fun of you for it. And you had to really scour like, you know, thrift shops looking for like eighties, like pants or things like that. So this was my kind of great idea, but I could never get the pattern down or the, you know, well, I was trying to do it in Pakistan or something like that on the email with someone that my mother had known. And it was just a total, the, the samples were coming out a complete mess. Well, where did, so here's, there's a big difference here of someone who is into punk rock, like me. I was into punk rock, but I wasn't making stuff and thinking, hey, I can sell these things and make money. I, you know, I never thought, hey, I'll start making my own jeans. I just like went and bought girls jeans. <laughs> where, where did it come from for you to not only think that it's okay to do this, but to just feel that you could, could, could participate? You know, I wish I had a really solid answer for that. I think just kind of, you know, where there's a will, there's a way. I mean, I just wanted to. It was just like this kind of, okay, yeah, no, I'm in my lied friends, but you're insane. And then, it, you know, it, it kind of worked. And this was kind of a, maybe a common thread. But the but yeah, the buttons were, buttons were my, my main source of income. I mean, those in Boston, you didn't need as much. I don't know if it would have worked in New York. Uh, I couldn't have made a living off the buttons there. So, I mean, just ballpark, how many buttons were you selling a month? Or how many were you making a month? Thousands. Are you really? <laughs> yeah. I mean, like a, a couple thousand, probably a few thousand. Holy cow. I mean, this was, and I, you know, there were, when there were shows, I might go up and set up and I could sell them. And I, I mean, they, they cost about 10 cents to make or less, five cents. I forget. Sure. I mean, pennies. And then you sell them for like a dollar. Yeah. You know, I was wholesaled for a dollar. And when I did like, you know, when I went to a show, I'd sell them for a dollar. So you could sit there and make, you know, a couple hundred bucks just in a few hours. And it was kind of. You know, it was it was good. Uh, it was good money, Jake. That's genius. <laughs> and so, I mean, you're 19 years old, and you're just churning out buttons. Yeah, it was pretty good. What were some? Of the, <clears throat> excuse me. What I was, was working the... part time in a clothing store as well. So this was part of the. Oh yeah. Uh, which was kind of a. It was an extension of Newberry Comics. That was how I had gotten the in at Newberry Comics to then launch my my wholesale. Hey man, got a hustle. Respect. <laughs> a wholesale career. Um, what were some of the the bands and the music that you were listening to that really kind of influenced a lot of this stuff? You know, bands like the Dead Kennedys and the Germs and the Adolescents, things like that. Okay, so like real punk. Yeah. So this wasn't like, like for me, I thought I was into punk at one point and I was listening to Blink-182, which I was like, yeah, I'm in punk rock. And a friend of mine comes up to, next to me and gives me like, yeah, like Dead Kennedys and started, you know, trying to introduce yeah, me to was, Bad Brains and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, it was all that kind of stuff. And the whole, that whole kind of scene, which sometimes reminds me when I'm at like PT, the kind of ways that you... Like you read some, you know, like you can look at a jacket and you can be, oh, obscure band and people are looking at like, it's the most minute details. I mean, there's someone who would, didn't know everyone looks the same, but if you're in that kind of world, you can look at every little thing and kind of begin to deduce what that person's into and what their style is, that kind of stuff, which is funny. I mean, it's like when I think back on it. So you more or less evolve, you, you try your hand at the jeans and you're like, okay, this seems a little bit complicated. Yeah, it was, it was not as easy to, to do. I needed to learn more about actually making clothing if I was going to make clothing. <laughs> but you had that drive. So next thing you know, you enroll at FIT. Uh, yeah. Well, I moved to New York. I started FIT. I'm doing menswear. And then I'm, at this point, I'm kind of maturing out of the punk thing. and I'm getting into, you know, it's still kind of a lot of music driven stuff. I'm getting into... Nick Cave, and I'm getting into the jam, and Paul Weller, and all of these guys. All extremely well-dressed. Extremely well-dressed. And yeah. now I'm like, I think I want to start wearing, like, I started getting really into suits, and that was the kind of where this kind of love of tailoring was. 
And while I was at FIT, I was also doing an apprenticeship with a woman named Stella Zotis, who's kind of a, you know, she called herself rock and roll couture. So she, so when I was working for her, we were making these stage outfits for David Bowie and Bon Jovi and Debbie Harry and Sebastian Holy Bach and all, cow. and you know, for me as a, as like a 20, 21 year old at this point meeting, getting to meet these kind of people was like incredible or, you know, I actually never got to meet David Bowie, but I worked on a jacket for him, which felt cool. Hey, you know, that's Rob closer Helfridge, to greatness you know? than me. <laughs> you know, so those kind of things were this big thing. And I, and I started seeing the way that she lived. She had a small shop, she had a workshop. And, you know, I remember her telling me, you know, if I won the lottery, you know, she had this real tough Queens accent. If I won the lottery, I wouldn't do anything different. I would do the same thing. I would just have a better studio and I wouldn't worry about money. And I was kind of like, you know, not a lot of people say that, like, that they, would, that they have that much passion in what they do, that if they won the lottery, they would just keep on doing exactly what they did. Um, and that really true. influenced me that she had this, and she had so much flexibility in what she could do. And um, obviously, I didn't want to make leather and denim pants, mm -hmm. but here I am seeing that kind of craft. So I started, you know, thinking I should, you know, what if I really got into the kind of custom suit business? And then it became kind of learning about that whole, you know, that whole world of, from, you know, from Savile Row to Italian tailors, you know, and really kind of geeking out and studying all these different things. Um, so at FIT, I, I met my old business partner, Amber, and we started, I describe it almost like a band jamming. We started just like, we were like, hey, let's make some clothes. Right. And so we started making suits. I mean, literally just at that time, it would be for a friend. Oh, you, oh you're getting, you know, you, you've got a thing to go to. Oh, we'll make you a suit. You know, it'd be like, and we would charge, you know, like, three or $400. And it would take us like, like two weeks of sewing to like hand make a suit. But wait, so, you were hand making a suit. You weren't just calling a factory and literally hand making our first few, like, okay, that's, God that's also, that's also just, sorry to interrupt. That's, that's also a big deal versus what I think a lot of people when they, when they, you know, I'm going to air quote, like get into making clothes. It's usually because they just find a factory I'm not belittling them, but it's like, yeah, what you're doing is you're like, no, we're going to make this for you by hand. Yeah, and we, and we realized that we knew what we were doing, but we were not master tailors. These were not, <laughs> these were not like, these were what I describe as, they looked homemade, not handmade. Okay. You know, handmade is beautiful. Homemade is like, not really what somebody wants to buy. Sure. I mean, they worked for the, the friends that we were doing it. And as <laughs> friends became acquaintances, and as we kind of, as, as it grew, it started becoming apparent that we needed to start hiring guys. And we went to, you know, one of the kind of key things that I've, that I realized was that you wanted to kind of find the, at, a, at an early kind of stage of my career, you know, go to the distributor and find, try to play the distributor off the supplier, if that may, like, so basically we went you to mean the, play business. So we went to the, we go to the tailor supply store and say, hey, do you know any good tailors? Right. Like real guys that make hand make suits and the tailor supplies guy says yeah of course because he wants us to keep buying tailoring supplies so then he hooks us up with the real tailors and then you ask the real tailors hey well, was there any better places to buy tailoring supplies and so on and so forth but that's where we found some of our first like real bench tailors and then once you start working with a guy that can it's been making suits for 30 40 years and you're like 26 years old you start realizing that you don't really want to wait another 25 years before you get as good as this guy it's better to just hire a guy that's really good at sewing um and that's kind of where we where we started yeah because i mean it sounds like you weren't getting your value and your ability to create you were getting your value and your ability to like take care of people and dress people yeah i mean it was just and it was just all we knew you know we were you know fresh out of school we knew how to sew we had industrial machines but uh 
so yeah, and then we kind of, so where, where am I? This was kind of our beginning kind no, of stage. This is like great. This kind of making clothing, um, similar. Um, and then we actually, around this time, which was another totally random thing, we had, Amber had made this headband that, this weird headband that like someone had stopped her on the street. And you said loved. a headband? It was a headband. It was okay. kind of, and I don't, it was this like really easy to make kind of applique headband. And then we got, we got picked up by a few stores and we sold this thing. It was kind of really cool for maybe like a season. But okay. during that time, I mean, I think we, you know, we probably made $20,000 making these headphones over the course of like a summer. Agnes Dean wore them and all these. And it was like this big, they were in, I want to say they were in Vogue. It was this like, and it, there was this kind of little explosion, but it gave us this kind of seed money essentially to buy you know, nicer industrial machines, buying all this stuff. And then when we were approached by a friend of ours to do like a pop-up shop inside this bar, we had the kind of money to, to do it, essentially. So you, know? you got a bunch of cash. You didn't just go buy a bunch of nice stuff for yourself? No. <laughs> I mean, maybe, maybe there was some of that. <laughs> but, well, no, I mean... I, but I didn't, you know... Yeah, we, 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 bought, we bought expensive fabric. And at that, you know, even... And at, at that time, it was daunting just to even... You know, when you begin to get books of fabric from Dorme, which are, could be $200 a yard, $800 before you even cut the thing, that was a big investment for us to be even making our samples. Yeah, I mean, like, so I, you know, have done a handful of little businesses for myself from like, you know, making a snow shoveling business so I could buy video games. But every time I ever did something, it was like, oh, I got money. I'm going to go blow it on myself. Who was, did, in, did you have any sort of business advisor that was like, hey, now you have cash, use it to reinvest? No, I'm just, maybe I'm just good at saving. That was, I guess, <laughs> we just, uh, yeah. Like, I mean, serious, God bless you. That, that's very saved. smart. <laughs> and then we used that to, uh, to kind of open up this, this pop-up shop that we were given that was like, we basically presented with, it was free. It was in this cocktail bar that my friends were opening and they wanted to have like a tailor shop in the front. Yeah. It was called the Elsa Room, which used to be this kind of divey bar called the Hangar Bar. Wait, like um, Elsa the, the bar? Elsa, yeah. Oh, dude, yeah. In, the, in like Alphabet City? Yeah. So dude, before... That's so awesome. For the first six months, the Elsa bar had a small tailoring shop. And I mean extremely small in the front. And we realized kind of quickly that this was not really a good like retail idea. There was this big mirror that opened up and you secretly went into this bar. And it was kind of... It got us started. It got us impressed. And it gave us the confidence then to open our first shop. But it was not... Uh, wasn't really like a great retail idea, <laughs> but, but it was, it, it worked. That's first off, Elsa was one of my favorite, like hang spots. They made an incredible Negroni shout out, you know, <laughs> William Brown, Matt Rennick here, but, um, like Elsa was an amazing place to go, but it's, it sounds like, you know, all these things that you're saying, it's almost as if you guys had this business plan. That's like how to be a super dope under the radar business by oh yeah have a little pop-up shop here but don't even have it don't even have your own spot have it in a bar or as soon as you get some cash you need to save it as soon, you know like yeah i mean i think a lot of it is serendipitous it was definitely not a business plan i describe a lot of what you know you know i kind of wish i had maybe more <laughs> business training but you know it's it was just kind of like it was just going with it and uh and, and it worked out well, or pretty well. <laughs> well, I mean, obviously, I mean, we'll, we'll talk about it more later, but we're in your, your second sort of showroom place. But so from there on, you, you I mean, you, you obviously do better. I mean, what caused you to move? 
so it was just, you know, it was, you know, for, we had some stuff got stolen because we weren't there at night and then it was a bar. So oh, geez, I'm and we sorry. had samples kind of, they were like, anyway, and then we were starting to realize and stuff was getting damaged and we was like, this is not really like what you want. As the bar became more successful, the tailoring, it's, it's kind of ceased to make sense. Okay. But it was, um, at that point we'd begin, we'd begin partnering with our friend, Ryan Matthew, who has been working at Ralph Lauren. He was doing jewelry for double RL and he was kind of a silversmith and leather worker. And we kind of said, Hey man, do you want to, you know, do you want to get in on this? So he started selling stuff and it was going well. And then we decided, you know, let's, you know, let's open, let's open our own store actually. And that's Mm -hmm. when we, we found that a shop called against nature, which was kind of a collective with, um, with Amber and I, which was Doyle Muser doing custom suiting and tailoring Ryan Matthew doing jewelry and leather and belts and bags and things like that. And a guy named Simon Jacobs who was doing custom denim. So we had this, we found this great storefront on Christie, which we divided kind of in half. So in the back was kind of our like workshop. So we had our sewing machines and we had two full-time tailors. And then Ryan was like, had his silversmith area. Simon had his area in the back where he was making denim. And it was like pretty kind of crazy. And then in the front, we had a, like a retail storefront. That's incredible. Um, and it, and it was really, and it was great. It was amazing. It was, this was like 2009, which was like a crazy time to be getting into the luxury business, but it just kind of <laughs> yeah, made sense. True. And it's in a, a lot of ways, I look back and it was like, man, there were, you could find, you could hire tailors a lot easier back then. I mean, they were like, guys were out of work. I mean, there was like ama- incredible talent, just like, like everywhere being like, Hey, you know, like you would, you know, it was, whereas now it's very hard for me to find new, like very talented tailors. I've also had three of my best tailors retire in the time, you know, in the last 10 years, which is, you know, and they don't pop up as quickly after that. They, yeah, you know. sure. Um, so, I mean, so yeah, that you was, have a store, you're starting to get clients now. Do you remember, or maybe this was even before then where, you know, you get someone that comes in and they're starting to buy from you regularly. And you're like, I think this is a serious business. Like I, I got to keep going. Yeah. I mean, when we opened it, it was like, you know, I, you know, we weren't sure how successful it was going to be. You know, we had other, I was working part time and we had other kind of things we were trying to do. And we were like, we're just going to do it. And if we can make it make sense. And within like the first month we were like, this is, this is it. Like it's working. Like it was this kind of incredible feeling that like we knew that it was going to work. We opened in September and then in October we had this great write up in the New York times. And it was just like, after that, it was just like, this is it. Like we're, this is all we're doing and we're not, you know, looking back, but it was also humbling. I mean, it was, you had guys early on, we opened up and we didn't have a lot of attitude, but certainly we were selling expensive clothes, expensive clothing. We had guys coming in, oh, I've been buying suits for custom suits for 20 years on Savile Row or this or that. And you're like, Oh, go God. Okay. You know, let's make this guy's suit. And it was interesting to kind of start hearing that feedback where people were really happy and impressed and thought that, you know, that they stood up to, and we were kind of like, wow, you well, know. This might be hard for you to under, or to, to answer uh, at this, you know, but what do you think you were doing that was different than, you know, than these guys that are buying Savile Row tailors, you know, for 20 years? Like, wh- what do you think was, made you so attractive and so good? I mean, part of it was probably, we, we were a lot less expensive than that. <laughs> that was probably a factor at that okay. time. But we also just bent over backwards. And, and I think, you know, I, I still try to, we, we really like, it's like your service, you know, we put everything into it. We were so like dedicated to this and so like patient and willing to just kind of work on every aspect. And we had really, we had incredibly talented people that we were working with. You know, I think that our, like 
our kind of team there, we were learning from a lot, like our tailors. Right. Um, so, w- so when does Christopher Street open up? Because that's that was. I mean, I when I first heard about you, you were guy, you were Doyle and Muser. Yeah. And and obviously now you're you're Jay Muser. Um, but you had this shop on Christopher Street. When when did that start? It was a little over a year after we opened Against Nature. We decided that we wanted to focus more on tailoring. And okay. it, it was, well, but the Lower East Side is a little tougher. We weren't getting as much foot traffic. Yeah. And, you know, the shop, because there were so many other things going on in that shop, because there was denim, because there was like jewelry and accessories, it didn't feel like we were, um, didn't feel as dedicated. And we were getting kind of right. like, we wanted to really focus on kind of our brand and our ideas. Uh, so we found this great shop. I was living in the West Village. I kind of, Walked by it and was like, "This is a great little shop on a yeah, I mean, great it's, street." It's incredible that the location. I mean, you're smack dab West Village, Christopher Street, like the best. Yeah, and and I don't think I even realized fully at the time, and I still marvel. I think that this street has so many interesting things. In it. I mean, it did almost ten years ago, and it still has all of these owner-run businesses. I mean, almost every shop on this block, if you walk in, the owner is like in the shop, which is a really especially in the West Village, especially in Manhattan, just doesn't really yeah. exist. Yeah. Um, which I still love. I mean, it's like so many of these shops, there are no chains really on the street, which is great. Yeah. So you open that up and what's, when do you, when do you go solo? Uh, so I guess in 2015. So we, so Amber and I kind of were starting to have creative differences. Okay. Um, you know, Amber really enjoyed the kind of really fashion forward kind of stuff. We had always enjoyed, we did it, you know, we dressed a lot of musicians, we dressed entertainers, and she really loved doing that. And I was kind of saying, you know, this is not really, you know, I enjoy that aspect of our business, but it's not as sustainable. And I was getting more into classic menswear and wanting, you know, folk, you know, and look, thinking about, you know, I, I guess thinking about these kind of nuances and wanting to like focus focus more on that essentially in terms sure. of like the direction of the company. And so as we began to kind of butt heads over collections and things, it started to kind of pull in different directions. And she basically decided to go off and start her own line, which is really kind of dedicated towards and doing more women's tailoring, which same thing okay. I still do, but I didn't want to, you know, we'll do women's tailoring. We do it all, all the time, but we don't focus on it like in the same way that she wanted to really have it be 50 50 men and women's and i was more like well let's just do it but let's focus on menswear gotcha um and so we kind of had that creative difference and so she kind of branched off and started her own line and i took it over and kind of changed it to j muser don't miss the new cbs all access original series that will make you ask yourself what dimension are you even in On April 1st, enter The Twilight Zone with Academy Award winner Jordan Peele in a role made famous by the classic series creator Rod Serling. The mind-bending reimagining will take you through the genres of sci-fi, horror, and fantasy to explore humanity's hopes, fears, prides, and prejudices in ways you've never thought possible until now. There are TV shows, and there are TV shows. And look, The Twilight Zone is one of my favorite shows of all time. I've seen all 156 episodes multiple times, and I also rode The Twilight Zone Tower of Terror three times in a row. But that's another story. Look, Jordan Peele is a legend, and I can't wait to see what he's done with The Twilight Zone. The all-star cast includes Seth Rogen, Kumail Nanjiani, Adam Scott, and more. It's on April 1st exclusively on CBS All Access. 
Cross over into another dimension, April 1st, only on CBS All Access. Visit cbs.com forward slash blammo to redeem your free trial today. That's cbs.com forward slash blammo to redeem your free trial of CBS All Access. Okay. That's, I mean, that makes sense. Because, I mean, now, you know, I know Coggins swears by you, David Coggins. Yeah. Um, Matt Rennick also swears by you. A lot of like New York guys have told me, you know, just like, dude, Jay Muser is the best. Like he's, you know, the value is, is amazing. It's the quality is incredible. The fabrics are good. And, you know, and there's a, a, a friend of a mutual friend of ours whom I won't name because he'll text me later and be like, why'd you do that? <laughs> um, who, you know, s- sings your praises. And I know that um, he's tried a lot of Taylor's. He's, I mean, he's tried a lot of tailors and he's got really good taste. And for him to say how much he likes you is, is a big deal. So, I mean, it's, you, you're definitely doing something right. Um, I mean, what, what other, you know, I, so, I mean, I would say like right now you're in, I originally met you at your Christopher street store and now we're in this sort of new showroom type thing. What, what, I mean, your business is obviously doing so well. You're expanding here. Yeah, it's been good. You know, we kind of, we got we started feeling like we were getting too busy, essentially. And if, Cause it's if a anyone has shop. seen, it's a small shop. So yeah. it doesn't take a lot for it to get overcrowded. And when someone's here and buying a bespoke suit or a custom suit, they really want to, you know, we, wanted, we didn't want to have them getting bumped into or jostled or being moved around as we did other fittings. And, or if someone walked in when we're, you know, fitting someone, we also wanted to be, you know, it's a kind of an intimate thing being measured. You know, it's like, so we wanted to have a space that was really dedicated. So. This um, this kind of we're space like a beautiful lofted type spot, you know, was a space that I had admired for for years. Walking by, and I, you know, was like, I have to like get in there. Like, this is the coolest space. And I, I literally just saw them packing boxes. This is like a couple of years, almost almost two years, a year and a half ago. Okay. Saw them packing boxes in the window one night, and I was like, Are they moving out? And I call, I like Googled it. I found the listing, found the management company and called them was like, Hey, I have a concept, you know, and it's, it, this space is, um, kind of a, I think it's live work, but it's, it's just work, work for our purposes. Sure. But the, the landlord or the landlady was amazing. She loved the concept. She was like, I think it's great. Like you're like a real, like a local and you know, it's not a big management company. And they just thought it was such a cool concept. And so, uh. So we took it over. We were open like a month later. It was great. That's insane. I mean, doesn't it make you feel good when a lot of people, when they think of New York and they think of like, oh, could I do a store? Could I do a business? And you look around New York and you see, you know, like what you were saying earlier, you see all these places that's like corporate, you know, and they're, they're owned and they're backed by massive places. And it feels like you're not going to like ever get in as a solo entrepreneur or just like a regular guy who's not, you know, bringing a wheelbarrow, a wheelbarrow of cash in. And then all of a sudden, obviously, you, you know, there are still lots of people here and they want to work with local businesses. They want to work with business owners. And I mean, it's huge. And I, I say that also to the, to a lot of other folks who are just like want to do stuff, but they're like, I don't know, man, like the city it's, I, I can't do it. You know, I mean, this, this well, is great. It's hard. It's, it's hard. And, you know, I think I was, was a lot younger when I started it and I was able to kind of take those risks. Now I'm married. I have a kid. I couldn't just like throw everything on the line. Like at the time I didn't, it wasn't much to throw on the line. There was the money we'd saved. And I had, when we first, when we opened up our own shop, I had 
inherited $10,000 from my grandfather. And it was kind of like, okay, I'm going to take this money. And this was like, this was basically everything, it, you know, and it's, you know, at the time I basically threw every single penny on there and was like, I'm just going to do this. And I'm going to like, I'll eat ramen if I have to. Right. And like, you know, as you get older, you can't like, you know, you can't be like, I, at this point, if I was like, I'm just going to, I mean, I got a new business idea. I'm going to empty every penny that I have and like eat scraps. Like, you know, my, my wife would be like, no, you're not. And your daughter. And my daughter. Well, you know. I literally know exactly what you're you know, talking so about. So it's harder to take those <laughs> leaps of faith. I mean, I think about it now when I think about, you know, new ventures or things. I'm like, oh God, I can't like, you can't risk failure in the same way. You know, if it hadn't, if it hadn't worked out when closed a year later, wouldn't have been, a, you know, would have been a bummer to have lost like that money, but it wouldn't have changed like my, I'd have been okay. Like it was, I would have done something different, gotten a job or, you know. Yeah. Like, yeah. There is something special about that time in your life. I mean, I say that now, I mean, we both have, you know, infant, infant daughters and I mean, I'm curious how this has affected you, but I would say for myself, when I had, uh, you know, uh, Harriet, it all of a sudden I had this, this drive to provide, but also it was a different sort of drive that I had when I was younger into which I'm like, well, if it blows up, it's not a big deal. Yeah. I can just eat, you know, bologna loaf, whatever that weird, (laughs) like non-classified meat is. And it's not a big deal. But now you got to, you literally have a mouth to feed. Like what, what was it like? You know, I mean, or how has it been since you've become a father? You know, it's, it's been good. Obviously it's thinking about those kind of things and yeah. it's been, you know, the, I mean, I'm fortunate enough that the company's solid and does well and continues to grow and thrive. How many people do you have on staff now? Um, two full-time sales, two full-time salespeople. Okay. I have two kind of part-time guys and then we have two full-time tailors and then we have a kind of a network of bench tailors that work for us as well but i'm more Dude, that's, piece, that's great you know. so yeah it's good <laughs> and so i mean yeah so fatherhood i mean what, what how do you feel ah it's been well, it's been it's been wonderful <laughs> it's been great and you know but it does there's certainly like a i'm not you know taking as many risks and i'm like i'm not thinking about you know i'm more like i'm trying to i mean not that i'm you know, I've been very kind of steady. My whole idea is about slow growth. I'm not trying to grow sure. rapidly. I have no investors. I'm not, I don't need to answer to someone with a lot of growth every year. I find those kind of companies to be kind of, kind of stressful and hard to keep up with eventually. It's like all these companies where it's, all right, you got to raise more money and then you grow and then you got to raise more money and then you got to keep, and it's like, I'd rather just slow and steady. <laughs> I'm like yeah. the tortoise and the hare here. Yeah. But I mean, you are starting to do a little bit more ready to wear, right? Yeah, we're definitely, we're expanding our ready-to-wear, we're expanding our accessories and sportswear and things like that. Um, and, and, uh, and it's been well-received, although the kind of core of the business is still uh, custom clothing. That's kind of, I think, what, what we're known for and what people are coming to us for. Yeah, like, I mean, what sort of stuff are people coming to get? I mean, do you have a lot of, like, guys who are just like, hey, I need a Navy suit? Or, I mean, because the reason why I say that is, you know, our mutual friend, I mean, there are people, you can really you can do sort of bespoke and like design something, right? We've made a lot of Navy suits. <laughs> um, so, you know, we have really diverse, one of the fun things I think about this business or that I find really fun is just how different the characters are. I mean, these are, you know, the kind of people that we have coming in are not like, there's not one demographic here. Oh, interesting. You know, when I've worked with a PR company or consulting company, oh, well, we'll talk about your demographic. I'm like, you know, we can look at it, but it's not that like cut and dry. We have, we still continue to have, 
entertainers and actors and just weird eccentrics that like to wear three-piece tweed suits and walk around the city. And we have, and especially as fashion becomes more casual and guys, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of aspire to wearing like sweatpants or I don't know what people, you know, there are, you know, you know, the people that come here come out of choice, not out of necessity, not buying their their uniform here. They're like enjoying the process of it. And I think that's, and those are the kind of people obviously I like to work with people who are like passionate about getting their, you know, getting their clothing made and enjoy it, the process. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting, you know, I had, a, I had a client in the other day and we were talking and he's in tech and he was, and he likes to get these really, you know, very crisp tailored, don't do double breasted suits and pinstripes, not the kind of stuff that you wear in the tech world. And he said he was speaking and he got up and he was in like a three piece suit that I'd made him. And he said, you know, when the Microsoft executives are wearing $800 sneakers, we have a problem. And that's why I'm wearing a three piece suit. And I was like, that's awesome. You know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, and that, that's great also that you're able to, you know, kind of influence that. I mean, the stuff that you guys have made, I mean, the, the tuxes and the formal wear, I mean, I call that out just like I was in your shop earlier. I mean, it's, it's really, really beautiful stuff. And I mean, I know that you've done a lot of, you know, celebs and musicians and things like that in, in your formal wear. Do you like, I mean, and maybe I'm just making this up here, but do you, I mean, are you like designing that sort of formal wear or is that yeah, really more of them? It's a, you know, I think everything I like to do is very collaborative. I really, you know, I think it's important to have kind of my, you know, as a, as a brand, you want to have your twist, but I think it's really important when you work with someone to kind of understand who they are and what they want and not try to like force them into one, one thing. And I think to me, that's part of the kind of essence of bespoke clothing you know, in, in general is that, you know, bespoke clothing should be really like made for you. It shouldn't be just tailored to your body. Like, you know, when you go to some of these and I hear these things from clients and friends, you know, I went, got a suit on Savile Row from one of these really prominent houses. And then they told me I wasn't allowed to do this and I wasn't allowed to do that. And then they gave me the suit and then I was like, Hey, can you slim the sleeve? And they're like, no, that's how we cut the sleeve. Or, can you do this? No, no, that's how we cut it. And then they'll be like, hey, do you mind, like, you know, do you mind tailoring? I've had, I've had clients be like, do you mind tailoring my, like, suit that I just spent, like, 6,000 pounds on? And I'm like, are you really going to make me, like, fix this jacket? <laughs> okay, I'm happy to fix it up for you. But it's like, you should, that's, like, you got to listen to people. And I think it's really important to kind of understand what they want. Um, and so that's a big part of what we do is, like, you know, putting kind of my spin on it, but also working with people and really, like, kind of creating a collection. Like, if you were if a designer is hired to come in and do something for, I don't know, for Chanel or something, you don't change the DNA of the brand. You rework it with your kind of image in mind. You, you work with that. So I think when you work with somebody, you want to kind of not change who they are. You take who they are and you take kind of, you meld it together a little bit. At least that's what I try to do. No, I mean, that's, that's fascinating. And I think that's great that you're able to do that. And because I know you know, I mean, we won't name tailors or anything like that, but there are a lot of tailors into which, and I'll say this for listeners too, in which you, you go to them and these are very prestigious, incredible people. And you know, that are historic. They're, they're great. And you go in there and you say, Hey, I want a suit, but I want it to look like this and this, and they'll refuse it. And it's, that is really challenging and, and frustrating. And especially when you think of bespoke and the whole point of bespoke is you're really creating something that's for you, that's just for you, versus like, well, wait, is it really bespoke if I don't have a say in how the the sleeve is or or how yeah. slim it is? I mean, it's it's a it's a trade off here because at the at the flip side, when you 
you know, what makes the real kind of great houses great? Like you don't go in and to Huntsman and say like a spal camicha. They say, well, what do you, why are you coming? You know, you know, you come to Huntsman for that's fair. a signature okay. shoulder, which yeah. I can respect. And I think that that's important. And where these brands, the whole point is that, you know, come to us for kind of what we do. And, and, you know, I think that they do work with people on some level, but it is, you know, and it's also important. I think about it sometimes it's important to, to kind of not let people go totally nuts. You want to kind of, you don't want to, you know, you know what, you want to have it still kind of have the, integrity of your brand behind it. And that's yes. something. Yeah, there so is a balance. To me, there's finding a balance there because you don't, it's, I mean, I could come up with a million of these examples. You don't go to this tailor and demand this thing. You don't go, you know, just because you like the idea of Italian soup, but you really just want to look like an English suit. It's like, you have to play off what people are good at. I mean, when I've had custom suits made, sometimes when I'm in Italy or if I'm in Naples, like I, I ask them, what's your house? What's your style? Like I, I'm here to, I'm not here to tell you that, that I like my pants cut exactly like this. This is my rise. This is my cuff. This is my lapel width. Like, give me your, whatever you do. Like, I don't like, you know, it's just like, I want exact, I'm not even gonna tell you what I want. I just want you to do it, which people hate. The tailor sometimes it's like, I've had people say it to me. I, you know, my reg goes, I want a new suit. Make me something. Ooh. And you're like, oh, come on. This is like, <laughs> don't do this to me. You're going to make me just pick something out for you and cross my fingers, you know, but. Right. Um, but I, I think it, it is important to let a tailor kind of do do what they do, what they do, and what they're what they're trained to. But I, I think that there's also a balance to that you have to listen to people. You have to. There is a balance. I mean, I know there's. Uh, I one time when I was, uh, I had a wad of cash, and this was many many years ago. I worked for a British company, and I got to go to London a lot. And I was like, okay, cool. You know, I got no one to support but me. So I'm in London. I walk down Savile Row, um, and I walk into this shop, and I told them I wanted pants because i was like oh i was like you know what i'm I'm curious what your price is on some of these things and they you know they kind of rolled their eyes and they're like well you know we started this and i was like okay yeah cool I, i'd love to to do some trousers and they were like we no and they act they refused my order they're like you only get trousers if you get a suit and i was like okay fine <laughs> so i go somewhere else and so i leave i go down you know two doors down to another place and i told them i wanted trousers and they were like okay they're like, we could, we could make you some trousers. And they're like, well, how do you like your trousers to fit? And I was like, well, you know, I, I, I was like, I'm fine. I just don't want to break. And they're like, nope, that's not us. And they, they sent me out. And I think like I, there's, that really bummed me out. I'll be honest with you. Because I wanted, I wanted to learn. I mean, now I feel like there's a way that you could have done that. Like maybe they could have said, well, we believe that you should look like this, this, and this. And we can try it or let us... Let us show you how it would look yeah. with what you want, and then let us show you what we think you would do. There is a way around that to 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 win, and yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I think that there's. I, well, I always like to joke that God, I can't wait till someday when I'm when I'm old enough, cranky enough, and have so much business that I can just refuse people that walk in the door like that. Like <laughs> that'll be a nice day. Uh, nah, you know what? I don't. I don't make pants like that. Get you know what? Get out of my store. I mean, but I certainly—they didn't say get out. So I, I won't. I'm throw, kidding. Yeah, I was like, gonna say I won't throw anyone under the bus. But they were just like, "That's not us." Bye. And that that just bummed me out. But sorry, I, I cut you off. No, no, no but that's kind of what those. I mean, that's. I mean, I I say a joke. I mean, that's part of. I think as you get older, I think that that's like right. the nature. Old old man tailors are like, no. I mean, you know, it's like they won't like. There's no time to like mess around when you're like, especially when you meet any like if you meet a Savile Row tailor or a. Listen to these old Neapolitan guys. We know some of the same guys. I mean, these guys, when they're in their 70s, they're not like, 
they're not chit-chatting. They're not no. like, there's not a lot of like, there's like, it's my way or the highway. Yeah. I mean, and that, which is great. I'm, I mean, I remember when I was, when I was studying, I had a professor at FIT who was this old Italian guy, was a, reti- a retired tailor who taught this jacket making course. And he did something and I asked him like, why do you do that? And he, and he looks at me like, I'm a complete idiot. <laughs> and he says, that's how my grandfather did it. And I was like, not really an answer to my question, but <laughs> maybe that is the best answer I've ever heard. Like, yeah. because you're a seven-year-old guy and your grandfather was like born in the 1800s, like that's how he made a pocket. Then you know what? By God, that is how you make a pocket. Like there's yeah. no other way to, you know, roll a Bissam pocket. And it's funny how that kind of like, I mean, this was like, this guy was like the most stubborn. Anyway, reminds me of those guys. No, of- I mean, it's, it's fun. I think there's the interesting thing of a lot of that is there obviously are a lot of luxury businesses and, and wonderful businesses out there, but I would say specifically the business of menswear and custom menswear and bespoke menswear, there's a lot of um, ego that's, that's into the, you know, into like the lore and the legends of how all this stuff is done and, and made and created. And, and even just the knowledge, it's like you said, you know, it's attached to the person's life and their memories versus you know, there's not, say, a school. It's like, everyone makes the pocket this way. Well, why do you do it? Because this is the way you do it. I mean, that guy, his answer was, because that was how my family did it. And I mean, how do you respond to that, right? Yeah. Yeah, but even that kind of like, which is, a, you know, we're used to, like, you're in school, you ask why, and there's generally like a, like a solid explanation of, <laughs> well, if you don't do it this way, like, I was expecting him to say, well, it saves time, or it makes the pocket Fabric more, or, you yeah. know, reinforced, or it's just an easier way of doing because there's different ways to do these. But it was just like, no. So, you know, it's just like, it's funny. I don't know. Those kind of things. That's awesome. Um, um, so obviously it's, it's amazing that your business is growing. I mean, as I'm in your, your office, I'm, I'm seeing a lot of different types of, of stuff like that that people are doing. Would you, you know, someone comes in and they're like, hey, I want to get the, you know, the Muser house style. I want to get something good. Like what, what would you, what would that be? You know, the house style would probably be a subtle, like a subtle pattern, a shadow check. Those are the kind of, or something like a micro houndstooth. These are the kind of fabrics that I tend to gravitate towards. Things that I describe from across the street might look like a navy or gray suit from five, ten feet away. Well, that's kind of interesting. So those are, you know. Like the Cary Grant North by Northwest suit? Yeah. Which looks like a gray suit in the movie, but you find out it's like a, a micro Glen plaid. Yeah, and you get up close. And those are the kind of things that I kind of on a personal level gravitate towards. And I think in terms of cut, I like a very soft shoulder. You know, we, you know, I like that kind of natural shoulder, Mm -hmm. but I like the kind of high waist suppression and button stance that's closer to an English suit. Mm -hmm. So, and we do a very kind of high, high gorge line with a general, like a fuller width lapel, not Mm -hmm. massive, but it's certainly not a skinny lapel, very high armhole. We like to put a little bit of the fullness to the back of the sleeve so when you look forward at a coat, there's a slim profile to the jacket, but or to the, to the arm. Mm-hmm. It doesn't look bulky, but there's a kind of a, a fullness that we put in the back of the sleeve that helps with movement, but a very kind of high arm hole that kind of cups to like to the to the kind of almost touching the armpit. Yeah. Um, for the trousers, we'll generally do a flat front, very kind of fairly tapered, higher waisted trouser. Right. Um, and for the coat length, it's a kind of to you know, me- medium length. I like to kind of have it right around the kind of top, top knuckle on the thumb. Interesting. So depending on, depending on someone's proportions, very long arms might change that. Very short arms certainly change that, that kind of, you know, these things. 
for people who heard that who are not that familiar with all the terms, what you said was like, I would say half Italian style and half English style. Yeah, it's a, it's a mix. Yeah, I and mean, that's like know, true American style. Yeah. yeah, and you know, I'm, I'm American. I'm not Italian. I'm not, you know, I'm a total, you know, I kind of believe in like that the kind of the genius of being American is like not feeling like you have to do one thing or another, like just like, like mixing things up and yeah. putting it all together. And that's kind of like, to me, the, you know, at least the, the essence of like American ingenuity. Right. <laughs> you know? Like, so, yeah. So what's next? As, as your business, I mean, obviously we're in this beautiful new showroom. Uh, I mean, I know it's not brand new, but it's new still. It's, yeah, it's still the newest thing around for us. Yeah. Um, what's next is it's unsure. I don't know if it's another store. Um, I think at some point, I mean, my kind of long-term goal is to, well, now we have a store across the street and we have a showroom. The goal is probably to combine those two, just okay. to say perhaps two or three floors of a townhouse would probably be the goal. Like a small kind of compacting all of the space I have now being three floors and two buildings and putting that all together um, is the kind of, you do know. You, do you do like, like road shows or like traveling trunk shows? So at we all? do trunk shows. We've been expanding a lot in LA. I don't know if we'll open in LA. We've thought about it, but we are, we're in L we're in LA a lot. We go to DC kind of semi-regularly as well. Although most of our DC clients kind of tend to come to us right. more often. And we've debated, but have not jumped on going to Europe more as we kind of, you know, it was something that I did for a while. I was going to London and I was doing trunk shows there, which was kind of a, a bold really? move. We were on Savile Row doing trunk shows and we had a lot of success, but a lot of, it was the same thing where we started having more and more times a guy would be like, you know, Oh, I'm going to be in New York next month. I'll just see you. I'll be in New York next week. I'll see you next week. And I started being, do I really have to keep coming to London to do these shows when these guys are in New York once a month? Like yeah. they're in New York more often than I'm in London. So maybe it's easier. Um, so yeah, I just- save some cash. So we stop, but it's something that I think about going back to. There's a great, we worked at a great showroom right on Savile Row, which was a lot of fun. And obviously, and that was when we were hearing so much feedback that people were just so happy to have someone- who really like like listened to them and wanted to like do like wanted to work with them yeah. because London's rigid English are rigid and that's kind of and I think at the time there weren't as you know there's a few more um, I mean there were other brands like but there weren't as many kind of good like soft softer tailoring yeah Not like we're doing so I mean it's but that kind of approach where it was. Like the, less, you know, a little bit softer than Anderson Shepherd type stuff. Yeah, like I mean, I'm like Italian soft, but not yeah. necessarily Italian. But like that kind of thing wasn't as prevalent in London. I think now there's a few other people doing that, and there's some other stuff that's popped up there. And there probably was there were probably plenty of things there sure. at the time, but it was it felt like people's response was like, "Wow, this is great!" Like a, a soft, soft tailored suit, and they listen to me, and they're just totally like willing to like do these different ideas, and they're not going to like you know kind of push me into like this thing or that. And, and at the time, because of the dollar to pound, it was, you know, it was great value for these guys. So, right. You know, we, uh, so we might go back there, but we haven't, I haven't really figured out uh, what that move is, but for now it's just kind of hunkering into New York and, you know, continuing to expand and to build the, so just developing the ready to wear has been a big thing that we've just been, you know, focusing on and really. Well, what's the ready to wear you've been doing? I mean, I saw some stuff. I mean, just making more, just like, just coming up, like trying to find the right price point with the right quality. Um, that producing. is a very difficult task. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's hard, and it's yeah. And we've I think we've got a really good situation right now um, in Italy where we've got great quality control and a great pattern maker who works for us, and we're able to do something that I think is 
really unique and really, you know, beautifully made and we're able to kind of offer that at a, at a good price point. So I'm trying to kind of tighten up some of those margins and really ideally make a suit that's even a little less expensive than what we, you know, trying to hit like a slightly lower price point in Maryland, make it a bit more accessible, but really in Italy, in Italy and keeping the quality really high. That's awesome. Um, one thing I just to jump back a second, you said you, you've been going to LA a lot. There is a resurgence of LA suiting. Like I feel like a lot of tailors from all over the world, like British tailors, American tailors, you know, um, even like the guys at, at P Johnson, a lot of people are going there again because LA has this like love of tailoring again. I mean, people were, were like not into tailoring at all for LA and people are like, Oh, LA is, is a lost cause. And now like, no, like LA is buying a lot of sport coats. Yeah. I, it's growing and it's great. It's, it's hard. I think the whole kind of culture of this kind of, you know, casual, casual, I mean, I think guys feel more comfortable, I guess, or a certain kind of guy when they're in like, you know, designers, sweatpants or jeans and a t-shirt. Sure. And, and I think that there's, am I trying to articulate this? Nobody, if that was kind of like the way everyone looked and you watched like a classic movie, yeah. like if Cary Grant was in like a pair of like joggers and sneakers and like a cool t-shirt, like you would not, like no one likes that world as much. Like I think even if guys don't necessarily want to get dressed up, but nobody, you know, these scenes of like old Hollywood, these things that we kind of romanticize or the way our grandparents dressed or these kind of things. Are guys dressed up? So I think that there is like there's importance to it. I you know I think about yeah. it more and more because as things get so casual, it's you kind of and I wonder you know, well, what is this? What's the landscape even going to be like in twenty years? Yeah, you know I, I feel like also there's like of the people that are buying suits, um, is, you know just for LA for example, it's like a, a bit of a rebellion against a lot of the people that are so casual. I mean just like what you were saying. Now, I know that, you know, whoever you were talking about probably wasn't in L.A., but, you know, who's buying this three-piece suit, you know, and standing this guy in tech or whatever you're doing, they're doing this because of a choice, you know, not because, oh, my boss wears this, I got to look like that, you know? And I think that's great, but it is funny to see a rebellion to tailored clothing versus, you know, the rebellion to casual clothing. Yeah, I think that there's... I, I see a lot of that at different points. I mean, it's funny. I hear different, but I also hear stories that are the opposite. I had another client who was like, who left his job and he was at more of a startup environment. And this guy just right. likes wearing suits. And it's, he was like, he kind of overdressed at his last job. And he was like, yeah. He was like, my partner told me, I gotta, I gotta stop wearing the suits. I look too dressed up. I'm gonna, like, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna scare the kind of tech guys. And I was just like, oh man, this is like, and you hear the same thing with lawyers that work in the tech industry. We gotta, we have to dress down so we don't scare these tech guys. And you're like, Oh man, like we all but have there, to. there is a way to wear tailored clothing and not and look not, like that. And I think that that's and that's where sport coats and soft tailoring yeah. and mixing in polos or sweaters or things like that kind of come into play. Where you don't have to look like a guy like in an ill-fitting navy business suit with like a red tie or you know that kind of. This is this this is, this is, this is there's a lot of ways to wear these kind of this kind of clothing. Yeah, I agree. Well, Jake, this has been. Awesome. I thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Before we wrap it, is there anything you want to add or mention or? No, I think this has been great. <laughs> okay. Awesome. Dude, dude, thank you so much. It was really good chatting with you. Awesome. Thank you. All right. Later.
before we wrap, heads up, next week is our AMA episode. Yes, we're back with another Ask Me Anything episode due to popular demand. So get ready and send in your questions. As always, our theme music is by Tan Lines. If you like the show, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow along with us on Instagram at Blamo Podcast or email us at info at blamopod.com. If you're hardcore and want to chat with other friends of the pod, join our Slack group. Just send us an email saying, hey, I want to join the Slack and we'll get you in. All right, we'll see you next week.